So the thing uh, as a pastor about Christmas Eve is that you kind of end up usually preaching on the same text every year. I've been in some kind of like lead pastor role for nine, I think this is my ninth Christmas Eve sermon. And I had this realization a couple years ago, actually, I started to realize this, that I had this tendency to try to be too creative about it and to come up with too clever a twist on it. And so there are certain things that are kind of just basic to the Christian story that I'd never really preached on for Christmas. And one of those things is the simple reality of the virgin birth, the claim that Jesus is born to marry the virgin. And that's an oversight, especially because in our world, lots of people struggle with or doubt the idea of the virgin birth. I mean, certainly if you're here and you're not a Christian, I know especially on Christmas Eve, maybe you have fond memories of growing up and the, the passing of the light and the, the, the familiar songs, and so you wanted to come, or maybe your family just dragged you here and made you come, I don't know. But certainly for you, that sounds preposterous, right? That Jesus was born of a virgin, and if you're if you have a temperament kind of like mine, you probably, some part of you is like, wow, Joseph was really a sucker, <laughs> something like that. You naturally uh, question the virgin birth. Even if you're a Christian, though, I know that plenty of people uh, have doubts and questions. There's a certain sort of kind of cultured uh, Christian critic that is skeptical of those things, even from within Christianity, and tries to kind of poke at it or question the idea of the virgin birth. I remember as an undergrad at UNL, uh, I was a religious studies minor, and this Episcopal priest who was a professor I had giving this whole long you know, talk kind of with a raised eyebrow about the idea being ridiculous. I remember he especially, his jumping off point was that he, he read from the prophet Isaiah in this prophecy from the Old Testament looking forward to the virgin birth, where it, Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then I remember him with kind of delight pointing out that, well, actually the Hebrew word virgin there, it can just mean young woman. It doesn't actually have to mean virgin. And so maybe this is a later superstition that developed and called it into question. And even if you're not there, I think for a lot of just normal Christians, while they might accept the virgin birth on some level, I don't know that they feel certain of it, and I don't know that we feel like it's important. If someone denies it, we might think, well, does it really matter to believe that at all? And so I want to talk about that tonight. But before we get there, I want to kind of shift gears quick and set the stage for that by going back a little bit. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings for the last month of Advent, we have been looking at this theme of miraculous births in the Old Testament. The analogy that we've used is to say that the Bible in many ways is like a symphony with these different movements, and within these movements we see these different musical themes that appear and, you know, kind of sink under and then reemerge, and then you come to the climax and you see all of these themes come forward and they're kind of full beauty and splendor, and that like that we see these themes in the Old Testament and then they come to their climax in Jesus, and we've looked at the idea of miraculous birth as fitting that mold. As we've done that, I haven't put it forward this way yet, but a way that people who study theology talk about that idea, the sort of themes and symphony, is to say that we see these themes in the Old Testament and Jesus is the true and fuller fulfillment of all of those themes. The true and fuller fulfillment. He's the true fulfillment, meaning that Jesus is actually embodying, often in the truest way, 
what those themes are about. He's not kind of doing a new thing. He's building on their foundation. But he is the fuller realization of them in that he is fulfilling them and bringing them to their climax and their conclusion and their point. He's the true and fuller expression of all of those themes. And that's true of every theme in the Old Testament. Just you think about like the idea of sacrifice. We see these sacrifices in the Passover and commanded for Israel and these bulls and goats that are killed for the sins of the people. And then we see Jesus as the true fulfillment of that theme, that Jesus is the true sacrifice for sins who's offered up to God, and he's the fuller fulfillment of that theme, in that he is sacrificed as God in human flesh once for all the righteous for the unrighteous so that you don't have to continue to have these animal sacrifices. That's the idea. And that is true of that theme of uh, miraculous births as well. We talked about Abraham and Moses and Samuel. It's this theme through the Old Testament, but Jesus is the true and fuller realization of that theme. And so to talk about the virgin birth and to talk about some of the questions we have about it, I just want to use that as our paradigm. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is the true miraculous birth in Scripture, and Jesus is the fuller miraculous birth. So first, Jesus is the true miraculous birth. We said that these Old Testament stories anticipate Jesus, but Jesus' birth is miraculous. It is unexpected, as I have named the Advent series, in a way that none of the others aren't. So, uh, Stories like Abraham and Sarah, right, who are in old age and she's past menopause and finally they're given Isaac in their old age. Like that is remarkable, but you can sort of conceive of how that could happen. And, and stories like Moses, I mean, as he's protected, you know, and cast out in the river and found by Pharaoh's daughter and brought into uh, Pharaoh's court, that's, that's remarkable. But, you know, I mean, people win the lottery sometimes. You could maybe consign all of that to luck. But when we get to the idea of Jesus born of a virgin, that is an impossibility that requires a miraculous intervention of God in a way that none of the stories before it do. It is truly miraculous, but that is, of course, what brings up some of those struggles I mentioned a minute ago about whether it can be true. So let's tackle those objections that I named when we started, okay? Let me just talk to you if you have some of those doubts for a couple of minutes. First of all, if you are someone who's not a Christian, and so would just say, I don't believe in the virgin birth, let me first say that actually makes a lot more sense than the other objections. Because within your worldview, of course you don't believe in the virgin birth. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, then you don't believe that he moved in Mary's womb so that his son could be born of her on Christmas Day. But if that is you, let me give you one encouragement as you kind of think about those things and maybe explore Christianity, which is that's, that's a fine thing to believe, actually, but make sure you're not confusing your assumptions with your conclusions which is to say this, if you assume that God doesn't exist, then it is a very valid conclusion that the virgin birth isn't real. But what you ought not do then is reason from your sense that the virgin birth isn't real to the idea that God doesn't exist. It's easy for people to look at miraculous accounts in scripture and say, well, that sounds preposterous, and so of course I could never believe in God. But that's actually reversing your conclusion and your assumption. If the God of Scripture is real, the God who spoke creation into existence, the God who in a real sense made all of us, the fact that he chose to then make his son in Mary's womb in a slightly different and more noticeable way is not in fact something that's impressive at all. So if you're in that place, there's a lot of other things to wrestle with. I would be happy to visit with you as you explore those kinds of doubts and questions. But 
just something to chew on. If you're in a place where you have some of that kind of cultured critic background, uh, or you've just been exposed to that, let me just say that to you. I appreciate the thoughtfulness you're trying to engage in, but I think that often the objections that you have heard or that you like to level to things like the virgin birth maybe aren't as sophisticated as you might feel. Let me give you, this would be hard to go through every possible objection, but let me, let me take that example from my professor and from the prophet Isaiah, all right? It is true, first of all, that in Hebrew, the word virgin and the word young woman are the same because the assumption is that a young woman was an unmarried woman and that normally then they would have been virgins. Now, even within just Isaiah itself and Isaiah 7 there, I'm not sure that gets you as far as you might think it does because when the Lord says, let me show you a miraculous sign, the young woman will be with child, that is not something that's impressive. And so probably people reading that took that as virgin anyway. But regardless of that, I would suggest that objections like that are kind of just red herrings because the New Testament eyewitnesses are very clear that Jesus was born of a virgin. And we see that in our reading from Luke this morning, or this evening. That's going to happen to me tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Luke says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Here's the thing. The New Testament is not written in Hebrew. It is written in Greek. And in Greek, the word virgin just means virgin. <laughs> Luke is not being ambiguous about what's happening here. And even if you had questions, a few verses later, Mary makes clear that she had not known a man. And since there's kids here, we're not going to get any more explicit than that. But she is making very clear of the fact that Jesus is not being conceived in the ordinary way. So if you're in that place of cultural criticism, I just suggest like it is worth wrestling with those things rather than taking them by fiat. Lastly, if you're a Christian, just wondering if it matters. If you just say, okay, I guess, sure, you can believe it, not believe it, but is it actually something we need to believe? If you're there, in some ways, the whole rest of this sermon is going to answer that question. But let me first point something specific out to you. If you look at verse 35, the angel, Mary says, how is this going to happen? And the angel answers her. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, in the first part of that, Gabriel gives this kind of explanation of how Jesus is going to be conceived, and it's mysterious. <laughs> like, I don't really know what it means that the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Nobody really knows that. But what's significant, if you wonder about its importance, is the therefore that's in the middle of the verse. He says that God is going to come on Mary in this way, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus stands as a unique figure in God's redemptive history. That Jesus is not just a kind of good guy or a thoughtful teacher or a noteworthy human being or one in a line of prophets, that Jesus stands as a unique figure and that there is a uniqueness to his claims and to his works. And the angel's highlighting it there. He says that he will be called holy. The word holy means set apart by being set up above. It is a term that's usually used for God or things in God's service, but he's saying Jesus will be holy and that he will be called the Son of God. And Luke seems to mean that in a special way. 
In Scripture, there's times where we as God's people are described as his sons and daughters, where Israel is described as the son of God. But Luke seems to be saying in a, in a way different from that, he's being called the son of God. And all of that is true because of the therefore that connects it to the virgin birth. That part of Jesus' uniqueness, part of his holiness, the thing that makes him in a unique way the son of God rests in what's happening here at his conception. Let me put it another way to you if you're in that place. The, the claims of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the importance of Jesus, they all rest in the way that Scripture works on the historical truth of Jesus. That Christianity is not just sort of like a moral philosophy or a theory about metaphysics or something like that. Christianity anchors its claims in history and in the historical person of Jesus and the essential, an essential part of the historical person of Jesus is this virgin birth, this true story of his birth that undergirds his identity. This happens in history. But if you're in that last category, or if you're just in general wondering why this matters, we should also say that's not all there is to say, right? That's getting us to the point of saying like, no, like scripture claims that this is true. It makes sense to believe that this is true, but we might still wonder why it matters. And that's because it's important to say, if the virgin birth is true, what scripture would then lead us to is a second realization that that means something for everything else as well. That, that, that we said, right, the claims and the work and the importance of Jesus are all anchored in his historical truth and reality. But at the same time, if that is historical truth and reality, that flows out into those claims and that work and into Jesus' importance. So the virgin birth is true, but that brings us to the second part of how those themes work, which is that in the virgin birth, we see that Jesus is also the fuller miraculous birth. They had that Old Testament theme, that he fulfills those Old Testament things and brings them to their climax and completion. So the angel doesn't give Mary a full mission statement for Jesus. In some ways, that's why Luke wrote a gospel and why Matthew and Mark and John did. But he does th say this about who Jesus is and what he's going to do to Mary. In verse 32, he says, Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel Gabriel is echoing this language that goes back to God's covenant with David, these promises that God made with King David, who is kind of the founding king of the dynasty that ruled over God's people. And what the angel is saying is that Jesus is coming to fulfill that hope. That the way that the Old Testament works when it comes to those promises of David is that God promises David that he's going to found a kingdom that God will ultimately establish forever and that he will put his descendant, singular, but on that throne um, to, to rule over it. And that there's this hope of this sort of life and goodness that's coming to the world. And what the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary is that this child about to be conceived in your womb, he is the fulfillment of that and that reflects this broader reality about Jesus, that Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament hopes that we find, including all of those hopes of miraculous birth. 
Now, I know some of you weren't here with us this last month, but we talked about a couple of those stories, and one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that he actually fulfills them all. So we talked about the birth of Isaac, this child of promise to Abraham, and the promise to Abraham is ultimately that God will, through Abraham, bring blessing to, the, to, to all the nations, to all the families of the earth, that he will kind of bring goodness and restoration to all of the nations, and in Jesus... Scripture tells us God is doing that, that now blessings are flowing to all of the nations. They're flowing as far as the curse is found, as the, the, one of the Christmas songs we sang this morning is. That in Moses, we see God's plan to work this exodus, this great salvation and deliverance to God's people. And now in Jesus, we see this realization of that hope that Jesus is coming to break our slavery to sin and death and bring us into freedom and life. When we looked at the miraculous birth of Samuel, Samuel stands as the first in this line of prophets who are making God's word known to God's people and helping them to call them into faithfulness and justice and truth. And in Jesus, now we see God's word made flesh, God making himself known through Jesus to us in this fuller and deeper way. Jesus is about fulfilling all of those hopes. But where does that start to meet us? Well, here's what all of that means. Here, in a nutshell, is the story Jesus is stepping into. We've been talking about these different themes of it, these different parts of it. But here, big picture is what it's saying. That from Eden until Jesus Christ, there's only been one story of the world. And it is a story of sin and death and decay and corruption. And from Eden until Jesus Christ, there was only one humanity, a humanity that was lost in Adam and that simply spiraled downward in sin and death. And that from Eden until Jesus Christ, there was just one kingdom, which was the kingdom of, of darkness, of this world, of oppression and injustice and sin. That there was just one uh, story and one humanity and one kingdom. And God is at work within that story. That is true. But the hope of the whole Old Testament story is that God's somehow going to move in the future in a way that changes that. And in Jesus now, the angel is saying that that is changing. That now in Jesus what is happening is that a second story is starting. The second story of life and restoration and salvation. And in Jesus, this second humanity is being founded. This humanity that transcends tribe and tongue and language and transcends sin and the corruption and that instead of being defined by our first parents' rebellion, is defined by Jesus's obedience. And that in Jesus, this second kingdom is being founded. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of life that is bringing light and glory and hope into the world. That Jesus isn't just sort of fiddling around at the margins. He's not just trying to kind of shift the window a little bit on the way that humanity is happening. He says the world, the course of the world was going this way, and that now I am breaking into the world and offering another way, another story, another humanity, another kingdom. That Jesus represents this glorious break with the past and this new beginning. And the virgin birth, in many ways, is one of the best imaginable pictures of that. That this isn't just a child that's marginally better, that, you know, is born into the old thing. This is something new that God is doing that is starting with Jesus. And what I want to say to you then this evening is that Christmas then, the proclamation of Jesus coming, the proclamation of the virgin birth, is an invitation for you to enter into that new story to become a part of that new humanity and to live in that 
new kingdom. The virgin birth matters because what Jesus comes to offer us is a wholly new and wholly different identity from what we had before. And that Christmas is an invitation to make that our identity our own. That we don't have to be defined by our past. We don't have to be defined by our family. We don't have to be defined by the things that we've done that we are ashamed of. That we don't have to be defined by Adam and Eve, right? That, that we can be defined by Jesus Christ. And I want to speak that hope to all of us, but especially to you if you're in one of two places. First of all, we talked earlier, uh, but I know especially tonight. Some of you maybe aren't followers of Jesus, that you haven't given yourself to that. And if that is you, look, I don't know your story. I would love to get to know it. I don't know what hurts you have, what doubts you are wrestling with. Um, And I'm not going to sell you some fake bill of goods, right? I'm not going to say, oh, everything's easy and fine and happy all the time if you follow Jesus. But what I do want to say is this, that all of us, I think, live in places where whether we like to admit it or not, we feel trapped and we feel bound and we feel, and we are enslaved to these things, right? To, to, to chasing these things that don't fulfill us, to doing things that are breaking our hearts and aren't making us happy. Scripture would say that we are bound and chained by sin and that what Jesus comes to offer you is freedom and a new beginning, a new identity that, is, that allows you to look at those things and say, that is not my story anymore. That whatever wounds or brokenness you have, whatever addictions or sins you are wrestling with, whatever shame it is you have, Jesus is inviting you into a new story. And again, I don't mean that it's all going to be easy or happy all the time. But if you're in that place where you're not following Jesus, I do just tonight want to say, maybe tonight would be the time that you'd enter into that new story and begin to find that hope in him. And then the second group of you that I want to speak to, especially this season, is let's say that you are following Jesus, but you are in this season, you're here tonight with heaviness and discouragement, right? That, that some part of you believes that, but some part of you is also just like, man, but it's, it's heavy and it's hard, and I feel that weight of it. In Christianity, one of the realities is that that new story of Jesus, right? That Jesus is coming to do this new thing and found this new humanity, but that it actually starts in the middle of the old story. That the kingdom of heaven comes into the middle of the kingdom of darkness and starts to work its way out. And so the reality for all of us is that we live uh, with our hearts in that new kingdom, but also surrounded by that that old humanity and that old kingdom and that old story. And it is easy for us to lose sight of the new story sometimes because we're so surrounded by the old. It's easy for us to lose sight of the light because we do see the darkness all around us. And if that is you, I just want to say to you that um, that because Jesus has come, that because of all of that, I know that it is hard and heavy, but what we've said about Jesus, because it's true, right? That means that that is also what is most true of you. I mean, there there are times that we just have to recognize 
that, that, that that is something you have, it is true and you have to fight for it, right? That it is so easy to believe the lies, it is so easy to feel kind of burdened down and trapped by the, the oldness that we still kind of have, you know, on our shoulders or that the, the, the lies that we believe about it, that, that, that we have to fight for that. But it is a fight worth fighting because Jesus has done it, because Jesus has come. And so that new reality that is flowing out into the world, that is what is more true of us, and that is what will ultimately become true of all things when Jesus returns. So that's the invitation I want to offer you tonight, that because Jesus has come, because he was born of God, because he's born of a virgin as this glorious break, that we can all declare over our old stories. We can all over, declare over that old humanity that we have, that it doesn't define us anymore. It is not what's most true of us anymore. That Jesus is the fountainhead of a new story. That Christmas has happened. Jesus has come in truth, in history. And while the old story may continue around us for the time, that Christmas is what is truly true and what will ultimately win.